0: Luke chapter 6 verse 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great.
1: Matthew 7, verses 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall, for it had, a, it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall.
2: James 1, 22 through 25.
0: Second Corinthians, uh, chapter four, uh, starting at verse seven and going through chapter five, verse 10. "But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil.
2: Let me pray for the preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, I do ask now that your word would be made clear to us, God. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, I pray that you would um, speak the words that you want spoken, God. May you um, help me to remain faithful to every word that you have written in these verses. And in this way, Lord, would you build us up as your people, Lord, equipping us for every good work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, our text this morning begins with these words in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? We went back to Matthew 5 uh, just after reading this, and we read very similar words in Matthew 5, where Jesus spoke the words, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter into my Father's kingdom. And so clearly this this message of Jesus was something that he repeated often, this idea that if we call him Lord, if he is our master, then we must do what he tells us to do. Now it's fascinating to me that both Matthew and Luke recorded words like these. These words from Jesus were clearly very incisive in their hearts. They were very memorable to them. And as I was reading these words this week, I remembered just various experiences I've had in my life where someone spoken a word to me that just kind of cut me to the heart and changed the trajectory of my life. One example that I think is certainly trivial compared to this idea of Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, and doing what he said, but it was still significant in my life was I remember when I was young and I was on a car trip with my family. And, uh, and I think, if I remember right, we were on like a long car trip, and I think my parents were trying to figure out where we were gonna stop for food, and so they were asking us kids, you know, where should we stop? Uh, and I was a very easygoing kid, you know, I didn't have like really strong opinions on things, and so one of the phrases that I would often utter uh, would just be to say, I don't care. And I would say this phrase a lot, you know, almost whenever my parents would ask me, you know, what I wanted to be done, what my preference was on something, I would just say, well, I don't care, I don't care. Well, I didn't know it, but apparently my dad didn't really like this response very much. And so this day in the car, as we were driving down the road, uh, he looked back from the driver's seat and he looked at me and he said, Rob, sometimes I wonder what you do care about. And those words, just for whatever reason, just stuck with me. And I think after that moment, I don't think I ever said, I don't care again. And to this day, if someone asks me about something, I will not say, I don't care. Because I realize that that is not... Uh, an encouraging thing to say to someone, it is not upbuilding to simply say, you don't care about something that other people do care about. And so those words, again, they just kind of change the way I live from there on out. And again, I think for Matthew and Luke, it was the same kind of thing with Jesus' simple question here. I could see Jesus looking into their eyes at these disciples who were probably so proud to be on Jesus' team. You know, Jesus, who was becoming the most famous man in Israel, who was going around doing all these miracles, who had, you know, crowds following him wherever he went, and they were like, yeah, we're on this guy's team, you know, and they called him Lord, Lord, everywhere he went. And then one day, Jesus just turns around and looks at them and asks them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And how convicted they must have been in that moment to realize that they loved the acclaim that came with Jesus. They loved to be on this big movement that was happening through Jesus Christ. And yet what they did not love was always doing what Jesus told them to do. And so Matthew records these words that he remembers Jesus saying that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who likes to be on my team will be in my Father's kingdom because not a lot of people like to do what I say. And Luke records these same words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And so, beloved, if you get anything from this message this morning, just let it be this. That if you call Jesus Lord, you must do what he tells you to do. And the the logic is very simple and very clear, is it not? That if you call someone Lord, then you are calling them this great title. You are calling them Master. You are calling them King. You are calling them God. And you can't ascribe to someone that sort of authority and then say that you don't need to listen to it. If you call Jesus Lord, you must do what he tells you. So in this sermon, I kind of want to break this passage into two parts. The first part is what Jesus says in this first verse here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So I just want to ask the question, what is it that Jesus tells us to do? And in order to get at that, we're just going to review this brief sermon of Jesus that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. What is it that Jesus has told us to do in this message? And then after that, I want to see how that leads to this conclusion that Jesus gives us where he talks about the two men building different foundations. While one is really not building a foundation, the other one is digging deep and building a foundation. And so how is it that when we do Jesus' words, we will be like this man who has a deep foundation and who the flood does not overwhelm. So part one, just reviewing. What is it that Jesus tells us to do? Now again, I'm just going to go through the the words that Jesus has spoken in his sermon that that we've just read. If you're interested in a longer treatment though, one book that I found really helpful is a book by John Piper. that says what Jesus demands from the world. And in that book, Piper just goes through all the Gospels, looks at all the commands of Jesus, and he just kind of lists them out for us. Here's what Jesus commands for us. And so that's a longer treatment of the same idea. But if we're just looking here in Luke chapter 6 at the sermon that Jesus gives, at the very beginning of his sermon, Jesus did not start off with commands. He didn't start off telling us what to do. He started off with blessings and woes." And so Luke six, starting in verse 20, Jesus said, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So, this is the first word that Jesus gives us. And again, it's not a call to action so much as it's simply a call to faith, a call to belief that we will indeed be blessed or happy. When we are poor and when we are suffering in these ways that Jesus describes, and that we will actually be miserable and experience woe when we live a life pursuing riches or pursuing the satisfaction of our bellies or our emotions. And so Jesus calls us to believe in this upside down kind of world that he's presenting. And then after that, Jesus does move into a section where he gives command after command. And again, we must listen to these commands if we are to call Jesus Lord. In the space of 10 verses, Jesus gives us 10 commands. So I'm just going to out, list out the, the verbs here that Jesus commands us to. So in verses 27 and 35, Jesus commands us to love. In verses 27 and 35, he commands us to do good. In verse 28, he commands us to bless. In verse 28, he commands us to pray. He then has illustrations of what these commands look like. So in verse 29, he commands us to turn the other cheek. In verse 29, he commands us to give our tunic. In verse 30, he commands us to give. In verse 30, he again commands us to not demand back what is taken from us. And then in verse 31, he moves back to more direct commands and not merely illustration. He commands us to do to others as we would wish them to do to us. Verse 35, he commands us to lend. In verse 36, he commands us to be merciful. In verse 37, he commands us to not judge. And then again, in verse 27, he also commands us to not condemn and he commands us to forgive. Again, beloved, these are commands of our master. We must love and do good, and bless, and pray, and not judge, and not condemn, and forgive. These are not nice-to-do things if we call ourselves Christian. These are things that we must do if we are to follow our Savior. And then, toward the end of his message, as we looked at last week, Jesus makes clear that all these things are to be done from the heart. That is, they cannot be done simply as a matter of outward conformity or simply as a matter of will work, but they must be done from a heart that desires God, from a heart that desires the good of others. And only then will we truly exemplify these commands that Jesus has given us. And so if I could kind of sum up this message of Jesus in three different words, I would say that Jesus commands us to be joyful, He commands us to be generous, and he commands us to be other-centered. Joyful, generous, and other-centered. This is what we as followers of Jesus Christ, we who call Jesus Lord, this is what we must be like, beloved. We are to be joyful precisely because Jesus says that we are blessed even when we are poor and hungry and persecuted, even when people are striking us we should rejoice and shout for joy because we know our reward in heaven. We are to be joyful primarily because we believe that God has such good things in store for those who love him that there is no sense in complaining about our small losses here and now. It would be like a a millionaire complaining about losing a couple of cents. We must be joyful people when we see how good God is And how good he is to us. And we are also to be a generous people. We are to be generous both in our finances and in our assessment of others. We are to be generous in our finances because God has been so generous to us. And because we know the wealth of God and again how predisposed he is to do us good. So we don't worry about our money because we know that God cares for us. And so we lend, again, not expecting anything in return. We give to everyone who begs from us. This is the people we are to be. And we're also to be generous in our assessment of others. Again, because God has been so merciful to us. He's been so kind to us. He has overlooked so many of our sins against him. And he has shown us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And so we, as his people, are not stingy with our praise of others. We're not critical when we look at others trying to find everything they're doing wrong. No, we give praise freely. We are full of grace and mercy and compassion. And then again, finally, we are to be other centered. You could also say loving here, but I know loving can often be very vague. And so, other centered, I think, is a good way to clarify what Jesus wants from us. And again, Jesus said that the main way we are to do this is simply that we are to do to others what we would wish them to do to us. We are to be proactively good to others. We are to seek out the good of others. And again, Jesus makes clear that this is the case. Even when they are striking us on the face, we turn the other cheek. Even when they are taking our clothes from us, we offer them more. We are to proactively do good to others. And again, this is a matter of being like our Heavenly Father, who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, as Jesus says. We never see any good excuse for self-pity or self-absorption. We never seek our own private good at the expense of others. We are always other-centered. And beloved, if these commands were not remarkable enough, (laughs) if this was not challenging enough to be this sort of person, let me just reiterate that Jesus gives all these commands and expects us to perform them in the face of great adversity. So Jesus is not even saying, well, do this when it's convenient or do this when it works well for you. No, again, in these blessings and woes, he speaks about people reviling us and hating us and slandering us. And then later on, he talks about people striking us on the cheek and taking our cloak. And he is talking about times when we will need to be merciful and forgive. So Jesus is talking about what is a very hard and difficult life. And yet Jesus clearly says that even in the midst of this hardship and difficulty, you are to have joy. You are to be generous. You are to be other-centered. This is what Jesus commands from us. If we call Jesus Lord, this is the life that we aspire to, beloved. Now, when I was younger and I was growing up in the church, I I often thought of myself as a Christian. And yet, when I thought of what it really meant to be a Christian, I often conflated the idea of being a Christian with just being a good person. And sadly, I think that the church itself often kind of helped me in thinking this way. In other words, I thought that, you know, in in many situations, there's no problem with Christians complaining about this or that. You know, they might complain if somebody mistreated them or complain about the weather. You know, that's what you do when you get together at church. You know, you kind of commiserate about various things. You know, and I thought it was good for me, you know, to seek restitution. If somebody did something bad to me, then, you know, I should seek to get justice against them. You know, that's just common sense, right? That's what everybody does. And so I can be a Christian and do that. Jesus wouldn't be against common sense, right? But as I've grown up in Christ, as I've truly become a Christian, one who wants to call Jesus Lord, I've realized that what Jesus calls us to here is profoundly countercultural and is profoundly contrary to human nature. It's not something that we can do. In our own strength, it's not something that is common sense. It's something that requires the power of God within us to fulfill these things. And so often it will not make sense to our flesh. It will not make sense to others around us to follow these commands of Jesus. And yet, this is indeed what Jesus commands from us. And so I believe that if we truly do follow Jesus and all these things that he has spoken here then I believe that we will have great joy. I believe that we will have joy that far surpasses anything that this world could know. And yet I don't believe that this will be an easy, light-hearted, happy-go-lucky kind of joy. I think it will even be, you could call it, a somber joy, a serious joy. Again, Jesus is talking about being ridiculed and having things taken away from us. I don't think Jesus expects us just to smile a big grin in the midst of this and show some kind of artificial happiness. No, he expects us to recognize that when bad things happen to us, they are indeed bad things, and we will mourn. But what Jesus is saying is that even in the midst of that mourning, there will be joy. And even in the midst of that great loss, there will be generosity. And Jesus himself showed us the way. When he was mistreated and slandered and beaten on his way to the cross, he didn't utter any words of condemnation. He had joy in the midst of his ordeal. But he was also quiet and reserved like a Lamb led to its shears is silent. That is how Jesus was in the midst of his suffering. Paul and and Barnabas give us perhaps a slightly different picture. When they were thrown into prison in Philippians, we see them singing to God. And so they show how even in the midst of great suffering, they can have joy. But the point is that we as Christians are both to expect suffering and mistreatment And we are to expect to be joyful and to consider ourselves blessed even in the midst of that suffering. And I think it's important for us to take some time now just to go into exactly what this looks like, how it works, because I think if you listen to the voices in our culture today, they have a very simplified view of human emotions, they have a very simplified view of human desires. And so in the mind of the world today, you're either happy or sad. And if you're happy, that means that nothing is going wrong for you. And if you're sad, that means nothing is going right for you. And yet in this passage itself, I think we see how Jesus commands Christians to have more complex emotional lives. To be able to mourn and experience loss while at the same time having joy and being blessed and rejoicing. And so we must learn to follow in the path of Jesus here and not simply in the path of our culture. And so this brings us now to Jesus' words that he closes this sermon with about the two men who have laid two different foundations. Now, the most fundamental difference that we see here is that one man actually did build a foundation and one did not. And so if you look at verse 38, It says, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So you hear that the man dug deep and he built a foundation. And then verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them is a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, another way that Scripture speaks of having a foundation is also speaks of having an anchor. So a foundation and anchor are clearly similar in that when storms are coming, an anchor or a foundation holds you secure. And so let me read for you also Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 20. behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So hear those words, a sure and steady anchor. And what does it look like to have a sure and steady anchor? It says that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. I love that language. Might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Beloved, this is what Jesus is encouraging us toward here in Luke 6 by talking about the two different sorts of foundations. You see, sometimes we need to hold fast to a hope. Okay, now a hope is a beautiful thing. It is a good thing, right? That's the definition of hope. It's something that we look forward to. And yet sometimes clouds can come in and they can cover up this hope. And the man without a foundation, when the clouds come in and the hope is covered up, they just forget about the hope. They just go their own way. They stop being obedient to the words of Jesus. They say there must be something better out there. But the person who has a foundation, the person who has an anchor, when the clouds come in and they can no longer see their hope, Instead of forsaking the way of Jesus, they remember the hope that they once had that maybe they now cannot see. But because they have a foundation, because it has been dug down deep into their hearts, even in moments where it seems clouded or unclear, they remain steadfast. They remain as a house that is built upon the rock. Now, I think... One of the greatest pictures in Scripture to know just what this looks like is given for us in 2 Corinthians 4, which, again, we read before the message today. And so I want to spend just a little time examining how 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of how we hold fast to this hope, how we have this foundation that God gives. So again, 2 Corinthians verse 4, starting in verse 7. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. This, in my mind, is a remarkable picture of what the Christian life is like. We are, on the one hand, jars of clay. Now, the reason why this word jars of clay was used is because jars of clay are fragile, are they not? We all know that if you have a clay jar, you throw it on the ground, it's going to shatter into pieces. So we, as human beings, are fragile. We, in our nature, are like a house without a foundation, are we not? And I think if you look around the world today, you see how many millions of people there are who are like houses with no foundation. There are many now who characterize our age as an anxious age. Nothing seems stable anymore. No one even really knows who they are anymore. The only virtue that many people have is the virtue of authenticity, which forces you to come up with your own decisions, to form your own self with no foundation, with no basis for it, other than your own inner guide, wherever that may be. We are clearly jars of clay. We are fragile and confused people on our own. And yet, Paul says that God has a purpose in this. God put his treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So I I have this picture of a clay jar that's large enough to like fit a person inside. And inside this clay jar, there is a person who is so incredibly strong that if he were just to push with his peaky fingers, the whole jar would just fall apart. That this is, in essence, who we have become as Christians, that we are fragile jars of clay, and yet we have a power within us that is so great that when people see it, they must know that that power cannot be from us. It cannot be from a jar of clay. It must be from something inside the jar of clay. Because they throw this jar around and it does not shatter because they do everything they can to harm and to discourage this jar and yet it stays strong so there is something else inside of it and so the apostle paul in second corinthians goes on to describe what this is like he says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So do you hear this picture that the Apostle is giving? That at the same time, he can be perplexed and yet not despairing. He can be persecuted and yet he can know that he is not forsaken. He can be struck down and yet be confident that he will not be destroyed. So, beloved, this is the life of a Christian. That we are to experience many slings and arrows coming at us from the world. Maybe it's in our workplace, maybe it's from our own families, but we experience these things. And yet, instead of allowing these things to tell us what reality is like, and instead of allowing these things to thereby direct our thoughts and direct our actions, We say, you know what, despite these terrible things happening to me now, I know that there is a Father who cares for me and who loves me. In other words, we lean upon the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. And beloved, the only sure foundation ultimately is the atoning death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If Jesus had not died, then we would have no confidence that God would be for us, that he would protect us in the midst of such persecution and such hardship, in the midst of slander. And yet, because Christ has died, as Romans 8 says, how will God not with him freely give us all things? If God did not withhold his son, he will not withhold anything from us. And therefore, when we look to Jesus Christ and we look to how he died for us and we trust in him because of that death, we will have a foundation that can go deeper than any persecution that this world can offer. And then we can stay strong so that no matter what flood may come, no matter what temptation may come our way that makes us want to just close our eyes to the reality of God and just kind of run off on our own way because we know it's easier. We will not do it because we know that God is better. In closing, I just want to present to you the picture of Eric Liddell. Uh, You may be familiar with him from the movie uh, Gates of Fire, not Gates of Fire, Chariots of Fire. Um, That's what he's most famous for. He's most famous for uh, winning a gold medal in the Olympics and uh, for how he stood up for his faith in the midst of the Olympics But in my book, the greatest thing that Eric Liddell did was the way that he died. And he died on February 21st, 1945. So next week, next Sunday, will be the anniversary of his death, almost 80 years ago. And he died of a brain tumor. But he was actually a missionary in China. And before he died, he and many thousands of other Westerners in China were sent to an internment camp by the Japanese, who at that time had invaded China. And conditions in this internment camp were just terrible, They weren't given any sort of medical care. They weren't given enough food. They weren't given enough space to live. So everybody in this internment camp was just utterly miserable. And yet there were many who survived and afterward wrote about Eric Liddell and the witness that he had in the midst of this internment camp. So one example is uh, Dr. David Mitchell. He was a child at the camp and he said that while he was a child at the camp, that Eric Liddell taught the children his favorite hymn. He said his favorite hymn was, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide, and every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And then he also says that Eric Liddell organized sports and recreation through his time in the internment camp. He helped many people through teaching and tutoring. He gave special care to the older people, the weak and the ill, to whom the conditions in the camp were very trying. He was always involved in Christian meetings that were part of camp life. Despite the squalor of open cesspools, rats, flies, and disease in the crowded camp, life took on a very normal routine though without the faithful and cheerful support of Eric Liddell, many people would never have been able to manage. He says that none of us will ever forget this man who is totally committed to putting God first, a man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. And then this is what Mitchell says of Eric Liddell. He says, what was his secret? He unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to him. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp each, early each morning, he and his roommate in the men's camp dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for an hour every day. So do you hear in that, beloved, someone who does the will of his Lord, someone who looked at Jesus as Lord and did what Jesus told him? He was unreservedly committed. He was utterly surrendered to God. Langdon Gilkey was another survivor of the camp. And he said of Eric Liddell, It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close as anyone I had ever known. Gilkey described how Liddell had largely single-handedly resolved the crisis among the teens that were leading many to fight with one another. In the midst of a moral breakdown, with no societal structure to retain behavior, few even seemed to care. And yet, Gilkey said, there was a quality seemingly unique to this missionary group, namely, naturally and without pretense to respond to a need which everyone else recognized only to turn aside. Much of this went unnoticed, but our camp could scarcely have survived without it. If there were any evidences of the grace of God observable on the surface of our camp existence, they were to be found here. So, beloved, you can see how Eric Liddell was an example of this power in a jar of clay. Everyone in the camp was weak and everyone knew it, but Eric Liddell persisted in doing good to others and caring for others. And because of that, many had a testimony of God's power and goodness in him. Oh, so, beloved, this is what it means to be built on the foundation of obedience to Jesus Christ and his teaching. If we call him Lord, we must listen to him. And if we do listen to him, then we will have a foundation deeper than anything that the world can bring against us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you indeed give us an anchor for our souls, Lord. Lord, that as we live in the midst of this world that is today such an anxious age, a time when people really do not know who they are or which way they ought to go, Lord, that you have given us this north star of your commands for us, and we must merely be obedient to them. Lord, will you help us, I pray, to hold fast to you in the midst of every trial. Will you help us, Lord, to have a deep foundation, knowing that you even died for us, and knowing, Lord, that if you died for us, then you will surely give us all things that we need. And as we have that foundation, Lord, would we indeed get great glory for you as people know that our obedience is not something that can be worked by our own effort, but something that could only come about by your work in and through us. I ask all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.